Let's pray. Father, we come to you and recognize there is nothing we bring that's worthy to be called good. <laughs> There's no amount of works or talents, abilities that would allow us to be called holy before you, O oh God. You who stand above the universe, you who place the stars, you who know the numbers of hairs on our head, you the Almighty One, have understood, and that's why you sent your Son. And on that cross, he declared, it is finished. <laughs> Only through his sacrifice through his blood that was shed that we could come to you and we can be called righteous and we thank you. Father, we come today to a very difficult text. Key to the gospel of Luke, but difficult. And, and Father, I just ask that you would guide us as we look at your word. Thank you for this gospel that paints a very clear picture of what it means to follow you. Well, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And as you're doing, as you're turning there, just to, you're going to say, wait a minute, we were in Zacchaeus and we skipped a few verses. Yes, we'll come back to the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. That's the intent. However, we can still paint in the picture and, and, and bring us along in the narrative, which we're, Lord willing, going to do today as we move through this passage. So we're in Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 9. As you're turning there, it's considered one of the 100 best English language novels ever written. George Orwell's The Animal Farm is an allegory. It's a story of Joseph Stalin and the Communist Party. What might surprise you, while it was written, well, it was written during the wartime alliance with the Soviet Union during World War II, and Orwell found it very hard to find a publisher who would print the novel. In fact, one publisher stated, if the fable were addressed generally to dictators at large, then the publication would be okay. But the fable does not follow, as I see now so completely, it, it does follow, the progress of the Russian Soviets and their two dictators, and thus it can only apply to Russia, and thus we cannot publish the novel. <laughs> Allegories are meant to raise up one's emotions, aren't they? Pilgrim's Progress, oh, that's a great novel. We're ready to charge hell with the water pistol. And, and But this novel, Animal Farm, creates a very negative response, at least in the part of the British publishers in the 1940s. And there's an allegory in Luke chapter 20 that also creates a very negative response. So let's look at the text, this allegory, which is also a parable, starting in verse 9 of Luke 20. Says, then he, that's Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. Now, let me again paint the scene for us. Jesus has had this 
events that have occurred in Jericho. We saw Zacchaeus. We saw the blind man. What does it mean to respond to Jesus? Jesus then takes that 15-mile hike through the Wadi Kilt up to Jerusalem, and he's presented as the king of the Jews, the, the Palm Sunday. How glorious is that? All three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the same series of events. So we got the Palm Sunday, and then there's a question of Jesus' authority that's attacked. You have the temple cleansing as well, where Jesus is strutting his stuff, so to speak. I am the Lord. <laughs> this is my Father's house. But then his authority is questioned. And then, in all three gospels, this parable is told. So it's vital to the storyline. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a very long time. When harvest time came, he sent a slave to the tenants so that they would give him a portion of the crop. However, the tenants beat his slave and sent him away empty-handed. In the first century world, this would have been fingernails across the blackboard. There is never an account, historians tell us, scholars tell us, there is never an account of tenants turning against the farmer. None. Not in the first century. Now, there's stories of tenant or the owners abusing the tenant farmers, but never this situation. And so already, those listening in the audience are going, What? But it, is, it gets better. So he sent another slave. And they beat this one as well, treated him outrageously, and sent him away empty-handed. So he still sent a third. And they even wounded this one and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my one dear son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to one another, This is the heir Let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asked. Well, he will come and he will destroy those louses, those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. That is a very strong statement in the Greek. It's used several times by the apostle Paul when he says, let it never be. Meganeto. But Jesus looked straight at them and said, Then this is the meaning of what has been written. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And on the one on whom it falls, it will be crushed. Then the experts in the law, the ch chief priest, the frozen chosen, right? They wanted to arrest him in that very hour because they realized he had told this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. <laughs> when you understand the backdrop of an allegory, all the pieces come into play. When you understand that the pigs in Animal Farm are the communist, it, it all starts to unravel. Oh, now I see what Orwell was trying to convey. And the same is here. If we understand the backdrop of this parable, we'll understand the components very clearly. I would argue, along with many other scholars, that, that the backdrop of the vineyard is Isaiah 5. If you want, you can turn there, Isaiah 5. It's the song of the vineyard. 
Now bear with me because you're saying, well, would a first century audience understand Jesus was referring to the vineyard in Isaiah 5? And I would argue, yes, they would have. And we'll get to that in a minute. But in this pair, in the story of Isaiah 5, let me just read this to you. This is the Lord speaking. He says, let me sing for my beloved beloved catch that there's going to be several connections here with the parable my love song concerning his vineyard my beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill he dug it he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines in the account by Matthew and Mark of this parable they t Jesus Luke condenses the story but Matthew and Mark give us more detail in the parable and Jesus says that the, the owner puts up a wall. He does the very things that we see here in Isaiah 5. And in Isaiah 5, 3, it says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked to yield grapes, it yielded wild or bitter grapes. In other words, it's useless. And in Isaiah 5, 5, it says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are pleasant uh, planting, and he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The context of Isaiah 5 is that Israel... God's chosen people have failed to meet God's expectations. Instead of great grapes that are wonderful to taste, they're bitter. And the context of Isaiah 5 is that the Lord is going to pull out a paddle and he's going to spank Israel and he spanks them with the Babylonians who come and they destroy the temple. And the context of Isaiah 5 is clear. God has a right to claim and expect righteousness from his people, which includes obedience to the messengers and to their message. Why do we think that Isaiah 5 is the context of this parable? One, it's about the vineyard. Secondly, there are numerous connections with the text. The beloved reference that we mentioned, uh, the owner of the vineyard asking what should he do in Isaiah 5.4, the owner of the vineyard being the Lord, also seen in 5.7. And so all of these connections are being made as Jesus is delivering this allegory. And again, uh, scripture, parables, they weren't given in a vacuum. Jesus is using a parable to explain a truth to something they would all understand and relate to, similar to Animal Farm, right? You don't need to know about pigs to know, oh, the context is communism that Orwell was addressing. And here, the vineyard connection is strong. And I would argue that the religious rulers in particular, as seen in verse 19, understood fully what Jesus was saying. So as we unpack this parable, I want you to watch. Who is the owner of the vineyard? It's God, is it not? Who are the tenants? That's the religious rulers, if not Israel itself. The vineyard is God's blessing. It's, it's all that God has given to his people. Who are the servants that are sent? They're the prophets. And who is the son? It's Jesus. 
So watch this connection because it's key as this parable is laid out. Again, Jesus' authority has been addressed. He was presented as the Davidic king. He cleansed the temple. His authority is being addressed. And now he's giving this parable to say, you all are going to be judged. So watch where he goes with this. Let's, let's, let's unpack this. Let's step back and let's look then at verse 9. First of all, we have this owner who's planted a vineyard. In fact, there's three things that he does. Did you see this in the text? He plants a vineyard. Uh, uh, grapes and wine was big business in the first century. This, this guy is an entrepreneur. He's bought a huge swatch of land and he rents it out to these farmers or these tenant folk uh, we know that in the first century, very little land was remaining in the hands of the small farmer. They were mainly huge estates in ancient Israel, first century. And, and then they were farmed out as is seen here. And now it says he goes on a long journey. Depending on when the grapes vines were planted, it takes three to five years to get a good crop. Which means, by the way, that the tenant farmers would have to be paid by the owner to sustain them during this time frame. So already we see a very gracious host, don't we? We see an owner who's willing to care for those tenant farmers to give them employment and allow them to care for the, the crop. And then we're told that in verse 10, the harvest is come and he sends servants. Now again, as we, we mentioned with an allegory, these servants that are sent, I would argue, represent the prophets. Servants seen throughout, or the prophets sent to the nation throughout Israel's history, we see one of rejection, don't we? Jeremiah 7, listen to these words. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, from that very day, I have persistently sent all of my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they do not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffen their necks. They did not, they, in fact, he says they did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them and they will not listen to you. You shall call to them. I mean, this is what Jeremiah is being told. What a bummer for a ministry, right? Uh, you're going to have a ministry when no one's going to listen to you. That's going to be awful. And you shall say to them, this is the nation. They did not obey the voice of the Lord their God. They did not accept discipline. Truth had perished. It was cut off from their lips. And Jesus telling this parable of the vineyard, which is easily seen in the backdrop of, of being seen as Israel. We see three servants being sent. The first is beaten. It's the term for, for being struck. And again, there is no record in the first century of tenant farmers abusing the owner or the ones sent from the owner. This is very unusual. But it gets worse. Because the second one's not only beaten, but look what it says in verse 11. He's treated outrageously. It's the same term used of Peter when he's in prison for the gospel. He was treated outrageously. And then the third servant, which is even worse, right? We're told that he is wounded. It, it's the term used of the man whom the, Samaritan, the good Samaritan helped. He was wounded. He was beaten, left for dead. And, and so you see this escalation of, of what's happened to these servants that have been sent. None of them, according to Luke, have been killed until we get to the sun. 
And so the father says in verse, or the owner says in verse 13, the father of the son, right? What should I do? What can I do about this? Now, uh, that's how it's translated here in the Net Bible that I'm using. If you're using the ESV, it's similar. But that term really conveys one of confidence. It, it could be translated, they will give my son a fair treatment that is equal to his dignity. In other words, I'm sending, uh, they didn't accept my servants, but they definitely will accept my son. Uh, that, that will be. Now, we know the reference to beloved son is used already several times in Luke's gospel to refer to Jesus, right? We saw it at, at the whole birth scene. In, in chapter 1, verse 32, this is the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of David. At the baptism, what does God the Father say? This is my beloved son, right? What, at the transfiguration, what does the Father declare? This is my beloved son, Son throughout, based on Psalm 2 and other texts of the Old Testament, had a messianic, in other words, the expectation of one coming, of a Davidic line, a Davidic king, a Messiah, was understood to be the son of God. The connections were huge. It was understood in the first century, I would argue. And, and so th this idea is the father saying here in this parable, I'm sending my son. The connection is, is immediate. What we're, what we're referring to here in this allegory. Well, look at the son, the uh, servants, excuse me, the tenant farmer's response. These servants in verse 14. But when the tenants saw, they said to one another, ah, I, the greed is just oozing out of the text, isn't it? It was expected for them to give a third to half of the profits to the owner. They're not even willing to give him a third. They're not willing to give him a fifth or a tenth. In fact, now they want the whole thing. In fact, you, you, look at the text here. It says, let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. In the Greek, it's emphatic. Ours, the inheritance will be Sounds like Yoda, right? This is it. This is what we're going to get. We're so excited. Interestingly, in the first century, ownership involved having the force required to maintain possession and to repel hostile claims. They're salivating, these tenant farmers. Now's our opportunity. He's away. He can't control the property. We take the air out. It's ours. Now notice as you look at these tenant farmers, I wrote four things that the text tells us about them. They refused to share and provide what did not belong to them. They didn't own the land. They didn't have a right to a third or half of the profits. They could have negotiated if they didn't have it. I'm sure the owner would have understood. They were unwilling to recognize any responsibility. They had disregard, even disdain for what had been graciously given to them. And the last thing I wrote is they were driven by greed. Their evil desires led to irrational behavior and unspeakable wickedness and even premeditated evil. Right? That's plot to kill them. That's what we're going to do here. But isn't this the reality of sin? <laughs> when I encounter adults who are fighting, 
family members who do not speak or fellowship among church members which has been broken. Aren't we acting no different than the tenants? I mean, think about it. What did we really deserve on this planet? What did we have that was, wasn't graciously given to us? And as I'm laying in bed a week ago with delightful COVID, the plague, I'm reminded yet once again, <laughs> all of this is a gift from the Lord. Is it not? And the tenants, <laughs> they've been given a wage during the time frame when these vines needed to grow. They've been provided for. They're not begging and yet they have the audacity to kill the son. And the crowd gets it. And the crowd you see in verse 16, may it never be. This is an abomination to us. We can't even imagine. It, it's so easy to detect sin in others, isn't it? I suspect some of those who said, may it never be, will be the same ones who cry, crucify him. Just a few days later. The caution then that's given in light of the parables found in verses 17 and 18. And Jesus looks straight at them. Oh, I mean, this is the teacher's stare, right? He looks right at him and he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 118. And now you're going, what? <laughs> how, how, how does this fit here? I, I'm, I'm really confused. We have this backdrop of Isaiah 5 with the vineyard and this parable. And then you, you close out the parable with an Old Testament citation. It's the only parable in the Gospels where Jesus ends with a statement from the Old Testament. And, and if you're scratching your head, you should. It, it, it's like, what's going on here? Well, let's look at the backdrop. Psalm 118. Let me just highlight this. Psalm 118 was used, especially by the first century, as one that was associated with the harvest, bringing in the harvest into the temple. It was also seen as the kingship, the coordination of King David. They were all tied together. Here's the kicker. Psalm 18, by the first century, was seen as a reference to the reestablishment of the Davidic king of the Messiah. You say, oh, David, come on. Luke 13, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. And he identifies his context. And in that very context, he says, I've come to Jerusalem, but your prophets have been, or my prophets, those who've been sent, have been killed. It's the same text shouted at the triumphal entry. Psalm 118. And all three gospel writers highlight Psalm 118 in this whole context of, of coming to the temple, the triumphal entry, cleansing the temple, question of authority, and now this parable. Daryl Bach in his commentary makes this great statement. The irony in the usage is that a psalm of national comfort, Psalm 118, now in, indicts them or convicts them of unfaithfulness because of their opposition to God's commissioned one. Well, it still leaves us some questions, doesn't it? Okay, I understand the power of Psalm 118. I'm having a hard time seeing, first of all, what is the stone the builders have rejected? The stone was a symbol of God. 
and of the Messiah. They were used interchangeably through the Old Testament. I can give you tons of references. Genesis 49, Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 32. The list goes on. Isaiah 28, let me give you one text. The religious rulers in Isaiah 28 are being condemned. And what does God say to Israel? He says, I myself have laid a foundation in Zion, a foundation stone, a cornerstone, a precious tested stone, a sure foundation. Peter and Paul will both refer to Christ as the stone. And later early church writings will also refer to Jesus as the stone. Okay, Hophidits, great. I got that the stone, the builders rejected as Christ and he becomes the cornerstone. How does that fit with this parable? Well, here's where it gets fun. So hold on to your beak here or hanging on your beak, I guess. The Hebrew term for son is ben the Hebrew term for stone is Eben. They're very similar. And yes, the crowd spoke Aramaic or Greek, but they recited the Psalms in Hebrew. The connection is made. It's later made in, in uh, rabbinic writings, Jewish writings. The Targum of Psalm 118 takes the stone reference in Psalm 118 and personifies it and makes it the Messiah. And here's the kicker. It connects it. Psalm 118, the Targum does, these rabbinic writings, Psalm 118 with Isaiah 5. This is not a coincidence. When Jesus cites Psalm 118, he's playing off the sun and the stone. The sun that was rejected is, is me. I'm the one who's rejected. And you say, oh, would they have seen that? Look at 19, look at verse 19. The experts in the law, they wanted to arrest him. They've blown a gasket when Jesus refers to Psalm 118. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. He's made this connection. Now, how does the stone function? That's in verse 18. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and on the one whom it falls will be crushed. Now, hang on here. This is a little difficult. But the Psalm, what Jesus is doing with Psalm 118 is he's referring to to. to additional Old Testament text. Let's look at this. Just bear with me. He's looking at Isaiah 8 and he's looking at Daniel 2. Isaiah 8 talks about the destruction, the threat of invasion upon Judah. And it says, the Lord will be a sanctuary to those who fear him, but those who don't, it will be a rock that causes them to stumble. Daniel 2 is the whole vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of this statue and it's a stone that comes and destroys it because it's referring to the messianic kingdom that will come in due time. And by the way, the rabbinic writings of the Targums of Daniel link it with Psalm 118. What is going on here? <laughs> it's like taking a, a tapestry and we have these key threads that are woven into it from the Old Testament. We have Isaiah 5, Isaiah 8, Daniel 2. And you turn it over and, and I would argue that what we see this huge pattern is Psalm 118. In other words, all of these Old Testament texts are coming together to show this is the Christ. Now that, if that doesn't excite you, you need to check your pulse. 
This isn't the twilight zone. This is God orchestrating events and bringing it to fruition with his son. Turn to Luke 24. We weren't going to do this, but I, I want you to see Luke 24. I've had people ask, if you could go back to the time of Jesus, what event would you like to be at? This one, the Emmaus Road, Luke 24. When Jesus reveals himself to those folks on the Emmaus Road and they're having over a cup of coffee, and then he says, I am the one. He says in verse 27 and 24, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself. In all the scriptures. Wouldn't you love to have said on that lecture? <laughs> all of these Old Testament texts come woven together and are unleashed in Luke 20. As Jesus ties all of Old Testament history together, he says, Israel, they've been the blessing. The, this is the vineyard. And you've been sent prophets time and time again. And then the sun comes, the stone, the one promised of Psalm 118. And what have you done? You have rejected it. And so going back to the text that we just saw, if we can go back to that slide, he draws this connection of Psalm 118 with Isaiah 8 in Daniel 2. And that is, these the, the stone will either be one of which you are built upon, which 1 Peter talks about. You respond in faith. Or you trip over the stone and it will crush you. There's no middle ground here. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Sorry, it doesn't work. One commentator states, and I love this. He said, the stone says with scriptural authority what the parable says by illustration. Either we respond to God's grace extended to us through his son, Jesus, and believe thus being built on the stone, or this stone is going to bury you. It will crush you. Look at the religious ruler's response in verse 19. <laughs> Just as Orwell's animal farm's allegories were clearly understood by the publishers, these religious rulers, they didn't miss it. They knew the text. After all, they had tried to kill Jesus in chapter 19. They questioned his authority earlier in chapter 20. And now, they've got a real issue. The more we sin, the worse it becomes. And hear me out, especially young people, it is a serious thing to reject the message of God and the messengers of God. Hebrews 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Sadly, notice what the religious rulers fear. Judgment from God? The son? What's the text tell us? They were afraid of the people. <laughs> really? I hate peer pressure. You should too. How's that? <laughs> the fear of man is no respecter of persons. 
We might call it codependency with adults, peer pressure with teens, or shyness with children. But whatever it's called, it all betrays the same idolatrous heart of these religious rulers. They're just like the tenants. Right? Refuse to share and provide what did not belong to them. Unwilling to recognize any responsibility. Disregard, even disdain for what has been graciously given to them. And driven by greed. It's exactly what we saw with the tenants. Is seen here with the religious rulers. Well, there's some principles here in your notes that I just want to highlight as we look at this. It's a heavy scene, isn't it? Here's Christ telling the religious rulers and the people of Israel of that day, either you accept me or you're going to be judged. It's clear. And so three points. First of all, even in the midst of rejection, the Lord continues to extend grace and mercy. Unlike the owner who didn't know what they would do to his son, (laughs) the father knew full well what we would do to his son. The son also knew, because later in that week in Jerusalem, he would be crucified. Grace rejected becomes condemnation. You know, speaking of grace, I've seen folks take this text and say, well, this is an indication that Israel was rejected. The destruction of Jerusalem does not signify the destruction of Israel or the promises God made to Israel. The destruction of the tenants does not signify the demolition of the vineyard. We know in Romans 11, so I ask, Paul writes, did they stumble, they, the Jews, in order that that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? So God is gracious even to Israel. His people, Israel, in the midst of this time and time again. (laughs) And God is gracious to us, is he not? Ephesians 2, you who were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and it says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. The owner didn't have to send the son. I mean, after the first servant, I would have scorched the earth. Good thing I'm not God, right? The second servant, that'd have been it. Send in the troops. Third servant, oh, I'm really done now. You're gonna lose everything you got. No, he went ahead and sent his son. Again, the father knew. What do you do with the son? Either it's a stone in which you build upon, or it's a stone that's going to crush you based on what you do with Jesus. Repent. Believe. It's very clear. Confess your sin, your autonomy. And believe in this one. Salvation is being offered today. It may not be offered tomorrow. You don't know what your life holds. Don't play games. The tenants thought they could. 
and we know what happens. And that leads us to the second. Rejection of the owner does not grant personal freedom. Can't you just hear these uh, tenant farmers? Oh, this is great. We get rid of them. It's freedom. We get all of it. We get to figure out where we sell our grapes, our wine. We don't have to worry about the owner. And their actions, sadly, were tainted not only by rebellion, but irrational behavior and ultimately judgment. I don't think the tenant farmers set out to kill the son. They just weren't going to pay their dues. But we saw where greed leads them. And sadly, the tenants thought they could determine the outcome of the story, but they were wrong. And so think about this. In the pursuit of control, financial security, independence, they ultimately forfeited everything. They gave up the security of tending the owner's vineyard security. They gave up peace and tranquility that came from not having to own their own vineyard and all the heartaches and headaches that come from that. And third, they gave up the privilege of getting to know the son. (laughs) And so often sin, well, sin does, it, it deceives We think we can live life our way. We got it all together. We know what needs to happen. That's what the tenant farmers thought. And we know the outcome. Well, there's a third thing here, and that is rejection from the world does not undo the Lord's gracious plan. It's a heavy parable. But don't forget, the son is killed, but he's exalted. He raises from the dead. Our God is sovereign. Tom Wells said, sin cannot dethrone God. This is what sin aims to do, but it misses the mark. Sin brings guilt to a man, but it does not bring him one ounce of sovereignty. That's Satan's lie. I'll live life my way. Well, dooby-doo-doo, you're not going to get very far, are you? Because God rules even when men imagine they are defying him. And so the son's death is not the end of the story, but it will be followed by the son's exaltation. And that's glorious, isn't it? To know our Redeemer lives. And you know why they couldn't arrest him at that point? It wasn't the crowd. It's because it's Jesus who gave up his life for us and declared it is finished. (laughs) Father, what a text. (laughs) To see how you've woven these Old Testament prophecies together to bring us to this point where we see, yes, this is the promised one. This is the cornerstone, that tried and precious stone. And as Peter states, that's what we are built upon, those who've placed their faith in you. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've received or hopefully you've picked up a communion cup. This is for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. You've understood that the stone or the sun is our redemption. You know, it's interesting in Zechariah chapter 3, a text that looks to the fulfillment of all the things that God has promised. It says that 
a stone is set before the priest and inscrawled or engraved on it says forgiveness of sins. That's our stone. That's our Christ. He's the one. This morning, if you're resting on the stone, you're not tripping over that stone, you've not, uh, you've yielded your life to him. You've come to recognize that forgiveness is found in him. This is for you. It's a sign of remembrance of what Christ accomplished for us there at the cross. So let's go to the Lord and spend a few minutes. If you don't know Christ as the Son of God, as your Savior, I challenge you to yield your life to him. Stop tripping over the stone and rest securely upon it. Let's spend some time in prayer. Father, we thank you for the cornerstone, for your son. Lord, we're no different than the tenants <laughs> because it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. He didn't need to die for himself. He died for us and our redemption. And like the tenants, we lived life in greed and selfishness and self-aggrandizement. Oh, <laughs> we didn't look to you. But God, you in your grace and mercy extended salvation to us through your son. Thank you for our rock. Thank you for the stone that we are built upon. In Jesus' name, amen. This parable, again, was given just a few days before Christ would climb to Golgotha and be nailed on a tree. He knew what lied before him. He knew the rejection. He had just wept over Jerusalem and the rejection of him. But he also knew that by doing this, he serves the cornerstone. And so, as Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 11, it's a reminder, this communion, of what Christ has done for us. Because he said, you know, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. 
when he took that bread, he had given thanks. Thanks. He knew full well what was going to happen to it. His body is going to be broken. But he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It didn't end there, though. He took the cup, the juice, part of the vineyard. (laughs) And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul writes, you proclaim the Lord's death And catch the next line until he comes. Father, the rejection of your son was part of your plan. We thought we had hoodwinked you. Satan thought he had won. (laughs) Oh no. Through the death becomes the exaltation of your son Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, we thank you that this allegory has an ending. Not like the pigs in Animal Farm, which we see the evils of communism. But in this allegory, we see a glorious ending. Christ sitting on the Davidic throne and reigning forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name.